Lay people can sit on the floor as well. You don't all have to be on chairs. It's not some sort of official setup. So, chapter one, hearing Dharma. In teaching the Dharma, things have to be repeated over and over for people to gain real understanding. This is normal. It's what has to be done in order to get the important points across. The words of the Buddha are called good speech because they lead people's minds to the truth. It's speech that is good and reasonable and full of meaning. When it really touches the mind, one desists from harming oneself and others and gives up the three poisons of desire, anger and delusion. But some will hear it and call it wrong speech because it doesn't agree with their opinions and habits. Actually, the things that agree with sentient beings' minds are not always good. In our minds there are concepts of right and wrong, but those things are uncertain. Good speech, however, is straight, direct and upright. It is neither profound nor shallow. Rather, it is the speech of the Buddha, which has the purpose of reducing the emotional afflictions and getting free of delusion. So, uh, as any of you who have um, read the suttas will have become acquainted, it's not uncommon for people to take offence at what the Buddha says, or disagree with him, or not be inspired. And um, so that uh, just because the Buddha was speaking didn't mean to say that everyone agreed with him. And frequently, if he was having dialogues with uh, wanderers from different sects, or sometimes his own disciples, uh, then... Uh, they, they uh, did not always feel inspired or encouraged by what he had to say. There was, um, I think, the very first sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya, the, the Mula Pariyaya Sutta. Um, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, at the end of that, uh, quite a number of the, of the monks listening were, um, were not inspired and took offense at what the Buddha had to say. So that's kind of the opening discourse of the Majjhima Nikaya. <laughs> so, uh, and then, so, when we... Uh, when we hear Dhamma teachings, we can think, well, I don't agree with that, or that doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't work. And so that uh, if we don't question our own opinions, our own habits of thinking, uh, and we take our, our thoughts, our preferences as sort of an inviolable, absolute reality, and then judge um, the teachings of the, of the Buddha, our spiritual teachings against what we assume to be true, then... We're always going to be abiding in our in our own opinions, in our own uh, sort of habitual conditioned perceptions. So the um, rather than uh, than believing blindly, I mean, when it says um, the it's the speech of the Buddha, the Buddha didn't encourage people to believe him blindly either, but rather to to listen, to let things in, and then to use his words as a kind of guidance, as a way of exploring your own experience, and so that. Um, uh, he was one of the very uh, unusual spiritual teachers that encouraged people not to just take his own words on trust, but to <coughs> test things out and, and to, to see what the, uh, what the truth of things actually is. So the, the Kalama Sutta in particular um, is very well known as a, way that, a place where that's articulated, where um, he was walking through a place called Kesaputta, and the people there called the Kalamas you know, asked him, you know, we get so many wanderers and teachers and spiritual um, sort of authorities coming through here, and each one of them says, 
yeah, I'm right and the others are wrong, and they all have different expressions, different teachings, different ways that they describe things. So how do we know who to who to believe and and who not to believe? We're in doubt. And then the Buddha very uh, very famously said, "You doubt that which should be doubted." And so rather than uh, taking things just on on trust from a spiritual teacher, taking them because it's what everyone around you in the village believes, or because it's what's told to you by your parents, or what it's makes sense logically, um, or it's written down in, in uh, respected scriptures, you don't take it uh, to be absolutely true, but rather test things out and what leads to benefit and, and uh, qualities of peace and freedom for yourself and others, then take those and use those, and things that, that lead to more conflict and more difficulty, more, uh, more dukkha, then leave those aside. Such words do not merely try to follow people's personal preferences. Some will say, if it disagrees with me, it isn't good speech and it can't be dharma. But uh, it's not a matter of that which agrees being good and that which disagrees being bad. These are just preconceptions and biases, the listener's habitual likes and dislikes. If we try to have everything agree with us, there'll be no end to difficulty. We won't want to do anything disagreeable. Whatever we like, we wish to embrace and act on it no matter how much grief it brings. Poisonous food may be tasty, but there is danger later on. The speech of the Buddha and his disciples is all good. It's dharma. But when ordinary people hear it, they may not understand it easily if it's not presented in a way that can reach their minds. It's not easy to see or easy to practice. So that was also an image that Lumpur Chah would use quite often, uh, that the... Um, that uh, food that is uh, uh, delicious might be uh, might be tasty, but it, it can be dangerous. It could have poison in it that you're not aware of, and so that um, uh, that sense of being discerning about what um, what you what you believe, what you think, uh, and being ready to question your own opinions and habits and, and preferences is a a, uh, uh, a skillful foundation for the for the practice. And certainly when uh, we take something to be uh, absolutely true and then we find that it, it goes uh, it, it's contradicted by what we come across in the teachings then it's good to say hmm okay <laughs> well it always seems different to me uh, I, wonder, I wonder why the Buddha says that or uh, okay that that puts things very differently so what's what's going on here and then we can use the the faculty of wise reflection consideration to say well that's interesting I've always thought of it in this way and the teachings talk about it in that way. So, hmm, so how, how might that work? And to use that faculty of exploring and pondering to, to dig into things. And, and sometimes when we do that, it, what, we, what the result is, is I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> this is still bewildering to me. Then it's, it's fine. Uh, I would say it's better to leave things not understood or not, not clear or mysterious rather than trying to, to sort of think your way to some kind of certainty, to, to come up with some kind of uh, an idea or a form to, to force things in, into that pattern. It's far more skillful, I would say, just to say, well, that's, uh, <clears throat> that's an interesting area. I don't understand how that works. I'll pay attention to it. I'll look at it and, and see how things take shape over time. So that was certainly the, the, the case I found when I, I, I'd never... Uh, really come across the teachings on dependent origination at all when I was a couple of years I was in Thailand and then 
when I, I came to uh, came back to England and was living at, at Chithurst in the early days there, then um, coming across mention of that in some of the suttas that were there in the in the little library at Chithurst, and thinking, what the heck is this about? Okay, I can get okay feeling and desire right. Okay, <laughs> that that's an area I can figure out. Uh, sense perception, feeling and desire. Okay, that that bit. But all the rest of it, I can't. I can't really figure out what the, how that works or what that's talking about, and um, and it was really quite a, a number of years listening to Lumpur Sumedho and then also uh, coming across uh, Ajahn Buddha Dasa's teachings on that, and then Tanjakun Payuto's book Dependent Origination was uh, was published in English, so it was a lot of that was just uh, just very strange and mysterious. What does it mean? That mind and body, uh, uh, so uh, you had ignorance conditions, uh, volitional formations. Volitional formations condition uh, mind and body. Mind and body condition the six senses. What is what does that mean? How, how does that work? What what's that talking about? Couldn't really put put things together, but it took a few years of just getting a sense of, of what the words are referring to. How that related to uh, individual experience, and and getting and then slowly getting a bit of a, a of a sense of how that might all work together. So uh, I would say, uh, don't be afraid to let go of your opinions and not have anything to replace them with. <laughs> it's quite okay to live with with mystery. So, any questions, thoughts? First of all. Any language is a tool to help us understand. Language is only language. If someone says just one word of English to me, I don't have a clue what they're saying. and It has no value or meaning to me, even though it's a popular language now. Wherever we live, in whatever country, let us speak things that help us understand right and wrong clearly. This kind of speech is useful. It's Dharma. But know that hearing Dharma is for the purpose of the mind seeing and being dharma, not for mere knowledge or memorization. It should enable us to follow in the footsteps of the Buddha and practice according to what he taught. Even though we have not yet attained realization, we should put language to work and contemplate it. It's easy in a way. For example, the Buddha said, laziness and negligence are not good. Having heard that, when you find them arising in your mind, as they will, you recognize and know them for what they are. Then you can escape from indolence and give rise to diligence. When laziness arises, it's nowhere but in the mind. When it comes, let it be a cause for practicing dharma, which means going against, reducing and transforming this laziness. We listen to dharma to, t- to make our minds into dharma, to let it arise in our minds. If it has not yet arisen, we strive to make it arise. It's not so difficult to practice. We just need to apply effort to make the mind pay attention and work like this. You want your mind to be dharma, not merely the sounds that come from your mouth. Don't keep the knowledge in your brain or in your mouth. Make the gates of body, speech and mind consistent in dharma. So uh, again, as we were uh, talking about yesterday with the um, that structure of the practice of study, uh, practice and realization, that... Um, the 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 use of language it's a tool uh, we have the, the words printed on the page and, and me speaking so language is a tool to help us understand 
but it's only language. And so that the purpose of speech, the purpose of words, the purpose of books and, uh, and, uh, and language generally is to clarify the, the, the principles um, uh, that are going to be valuable to us and to help the mind put those into action. So he gives the example of, of saying yeah, laziness and negligence are not good. So there's a, a collection of words, laziness and negligence are not good. So hopefully, the, then hearing that, the mind goes, oh yes, of course, ding, that, that makes sense. And then hearing that, then there's the encouragement to uh, apply that uh, and to, to follow that advice and see what the effect of it is. And so, as he says, when laziness arises, then those having heard those words, and you know, okay, this is something not to, not to go along with, not to follow, to go against this, and then you look at the results of having gone against that uh, quality of laziness, and so then you can see the the results of that. Of that. Okay, having chosen not to follow that, having chosen to to encourage a, a greater quality of energy, then see what the effect of that is. And so then that is uh, in a way cultivate. That's practicing practicing the Dhamma. And and then as those things are developed, as the practice is is developed and continued, then that uh, seeing the positive result of that over and over and over then that becomes uh, something that is more readily followed. It's quite easy just to be um, recollecting the words or to, and to be respecting the words, but it's the putting them into to practice and using them to, to change the way that, that uh, we function, change the way that the life is appreciated moment by moment. That's the, that's the, the significance, that's the, the value of the, the words that we, that we read and that we listen to. Listening to Dharma is for the purpose of knowing how to practice Dharma. So if we say, practice to make it Dharma, then what exactly is Dharma? Everything in this world. Something that is not Dharma does not exist. Forms that we can see with the eye are nothing but Dharma. Beings in the world are all Dharma. One meaning of Dharma is nature, which, ar- which arises just as it is, and which nobody can fashion or alter. The nature of phenomena is Dharma. This refers to objects, the world of forms. So this was, a, again, a, um, a very uh, frequently addressed theme of Lung Po Cha. Um, and in an, another one of his, uh, of his talks, um, he says, he uses the phrase, inside is Dharma, outside is Dharma. That everything in the world, uh, every aspect of, of the natural order, uh, the, the world of experience, is an attribute of Dharma. And the, the word for um, for nature is Dhamma Jati, born of the Dhamma. In the, in the Thai language, Tamachat uh, uh, is, uh, is directly coming from the Pali Dhamma Jati, born of the Dhamma. So that when we, when we use the word nature, then that is, um, say, you know, is, uh, that is very much an equivalent to, to Dhamma itself. And there's one of uh, uh, the talks of Lumpur Charles that's got the title Dhamma Nature, where he, that's uh, explored very, very extensively. Um, and so that uh, this is also something I feel is, is very uh, helpful to contemplate, that uh, if we consider uh, dham- nature is Dhamma, Dhamma is nature, then what aspect of our mind, our body, is not part of nature? You know, that... Uh, 
we, we think of the Dhamma as some sort of um, invisible, intangible um, essence somewhere else or behind things or under things. But uh, and as a kind of can easily be a sort of remoteness or or in, or mysteriousness to that. But uh, if you consider if Dhamma is nature, uh, nature is Dhamma, then uh, every aspect of our body and mind, every aspect of of what what we are in the world, is an expression of, of Dhamma. It's the uh, the the fundamental nature of mind is Dhamma, so that. We think of our, uh, the mind being me and being a personal. This is my mind, my thoughts, my feelings, my experience, my awareness, my uh, my understanding, and that that seems very personal. That the conditioning of the mind is to make it very very personal. It's felt here. We say it's just happening in my life, my body, my mind. It's and and so that's a very ordinary and familiar way of framing things. But the, uh, so much of the uh, of the purpose of insight meditation is breaking down those habits of, of self creation and um, uh, eye making and mind making around that and to see well every aspect of this body uh, is part of the natural order all of the the oxygen and nitrogen and carbon and phosphorus and, and uh, you know, the uh, all, all of the material forms of the of the the body, and the clothing that we wear, the book that I'm holding, the, even the, the glasses I'm looking through, these are all uh, part of the natural order. Uh, they are all dhamma in that in that respect, and so that um, with that, uh, the application of of insight, particularly the exploring the the teachings on not self, then you, there's a, a, a a deliberate breaking down of that, uh, you know, my mind, my my body, my feelings, my memories, the eye making and mind making around the the body, the mind, the personality, and, and uh, memory, and, and so on and so forth, and the way we judge ourselves, the way we judge others, and that to see uh, uh, each uh, uh, each to see ourselves and to see each other, to see things as attributes of nature is really seeing with the eye of Dhamma, I would say. And not just having the, the idea of it, but actually <laughs> changing the, the, the mode of vision so that when there's a, a, an angry feeling or a, a, an excited feeling or a, a, a worried feeling arises, then seeing with the eye of Dhamma, it's not, rather than the mind immediately going, I'm angry or I'm excited or I'm worried, it, there's that immediate knowing. This is the, this is anger. It's a part of nature. This is uh, this is anxiety. It's a part of nature, or just uh, or seeing visual forms. You know, this is a uh, this is a color gray. This is a color brown. You know, this is a color red. Uh, that those are perceptions that arise in the visual world. That they are they're part of, of the natural order. You can say I see red or I see brown or you know, I see white and black, but that's uh, taken. Uh, 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 it's not taken at face value. That's that's uh, recognised as being a just a, a convenient manner of expression to to talk about uh, a mode of, of experiencing, but it's not ultimately real. That the it's not uh, there's not a um, there's nothing personal or solid or or, or absolute about about colors, forms, shapes, sounds, smells, tastes, tangible objects, 
these are all patterns of nature arising, taking shape and, and passing away. So you're breaking through that personalizing habit is really the, the engine of the practice. And, and, and the result of that, um, then, of seeing that uh, uh, the, the, the fundamental nature of, of mind and, and all things is Dhamma, then that is uh, 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 recognized as bringing a, a, or, uh, and directly experiences, uh, directly brings about the experience of a quality of, of peace and freedom uh, and ease. The, the more the mind is free of seeing things in personal terms and, uh, and in uh, say compulsively following feelings of aversion or attraction or anxiety or opinion, uh, then the more the mind can you know, relate to the field of experience with a quality of, of balance and, uh, and uh, a natural attunement. The, the mind doesn't relate to the experience of the world or the inner world or the outer world in a, a sort of compulsive and personal way, but it, it's uh, instead guided by mindfulness and wisdom as a responsive way that the mind relates to attraction, aversion, and uh, the, all of the different aspects of, of experience. So this little paragraph, I would say, is very very helpful to uh, to reflect upon, and I would also highly recommend that that talk of Lumpur Chah's Dhamma, Dhamma Nature, um, that where he, he talks about this and as a, a theme for for contemplation. I, I like to use that myself. That the the mind. Is is dhamma? It's not a person. Just take that one simple phrase, <laughs> because we uh, the, the the tendency is so strong to think of my mind, my thoughts, my feelings, my practice. It's so natural, so so uh, automatic, and so compelling, just to shift the view and using the words like the the language of the the jitta. The mind is dhamma, not a person. Just to drop that suggestion into the into the the into the the field of experience to lead the mind into changing its view is a I find a very very powerful and very um, significant uh, way of, of say changing the perspective. Any questions thoughts? Yes. If the mind is all nature, every thought is nature. So when we get when we have unwholesome thoughts, and then the mind, or we get angry, the mind keep going, going, going. So every thought is all nature. If the nature it will rise and fall, should we just let let it run course, or should we apply for the right effort? Why do we even? Well, not everything that's natural is wholesome. Yeah, unwholesomeness is part of nature as well. <laughs> So uh, that the, the more that the, the mind see in those things in in um, uh, in non-personal terms, then the recognition of what is wholesome and what is unwholesome is much clearer, and it, it, you know, it's not taken personally. Like it's an angry feeling, and then then rather than oh I'm angry or I'm upset, or oh, this is an angry feeling. And part of mindfulness and wisdom is recognizing if this is followed, everybody loses. It's painful here, it's painful there, every, you know, it's got painful results everywhere. Therefore, let this not be followed. Let this not be, so that it's natural, 
but you know, violence is natural, selfishness is natural. Yeah, so that they, uh, uh, so they, not everything that's natural is 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 beneficial or wholesome. But it, to see that it's uh, it's part of nature is the kind of stage one, and then stage two is then letting the mindfulness and wisdom appreciate what's what's wholesome, what's what's unwholesome, and so that then what is wholesome, then that the 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 recognition of that with with mindfulness and wisdom is uh, this is beneficial this is kind this is kindly this is wholesome let this be followed let this be you know, supported and, and cultivated I, I find it difficult to to stop the anger without suppressing it because I don't know how to stop the anger or unwholesome thoughts without uh, the sense of self. So the anger will come, come back again and again, go through the circles. So I feel like... Uh, that's why we practice. <laughs> so, uh, well, uh, the um, mindfulness of emotion is, uh, is a kind of an advanced practice in some ways. If we only try to work with emotions when they've risen on their own in live situations, then we're uh, uh, we're asking a lot of ourselves. It's like um, if you're in this in the sports world, if you if you are, are you're um, going into a competition but you haven't trained at all, then not only will you be not be uh, not be very fit, but you might have learned a lot of the moves you need on the tennis court or on the the um uh in the, the whatever sport you might be engaged in so uh, you do a lot of training when it's not a competition you get fit and you learn the skills of okay this is how to hit the ball over the net or this is how to put the the ball into the basket um because uh you train over and over and over so then when it's a competition when it's a live active engagement then you know what to do. The skills are there, the fitness is there. So you can meditate on emotion. And so particularly things like anger or jealousy or lust or fear to uh, deliberately bring those into the mind. When when it's a a training situation, like you're sitting by yourself or you're sitting with your eyes closed in in the temple and then to let them to bring the mind to a quality of, of concentration and focus as much as possible and then to uh, if you say you're wanting to explore anger then to deliberately remember an event that roused anger in you or think of a person who uh, triggers angry feelings in you or you know, just uh, bringing up a particular recent event that brought that up so you're you're deliberately inviting that that, that set of feelings to arise but it's a, it's a benign situation the other person isn't there or they might be there but they're sitting quietly somewhere else you know somewhere a few cushions away but <laughs> out of reach yeah. and so that um, you're you're changing the dynamics so that you're you're remembering that and you're deliberately say launching that emotion and then um what uh, uh, is the, the most tricky part of that of this as, as a meditation practice is then to take the attention off the memory and the, the, the story making about that person and what they did and how they said this or that 
but to to having launched that angry feeling to then turn the attention around and and fully appreciate the the physical sensations that go with that so they this is what anger feels like so because when when you're angry with someone or when you're attracted to someone or you're afraid of someone or something you know the, the emotion the attention goes to the thing that you're afraid of or you're you're irritated by or you're desiring or you that the mind goes to that object, that person or that thing, and it doesn't notice how it's being felt here. So even emotions that we might think are are very pleasant, like um, being excited or being uh, being uh, you know, uh, in, uh, interested, and you think, well, that's really good. I like you know, like being interested, I like being excited. If you bring attention into the body, it's, you find it's surprisingly uncomfortable. <laughs> to be to be excited uh, it's oh why do, I, why do I want more of this this is not very not very pleasant at all and so uh, the bringing a, turning the attention around to feel okay this is the feeling of anger this is what it's like so that's where the, the, the most tricky part of this as a practice comes is taking the attention off that person that event that memory and then feeling this is what that this is what anger feels like it's not a person doesn't belong to a person here it is it's, it's like this it feels this way and to as fully and completely just no, uh, appreciate the that feeling of uh, of anger as it's known in the body the physical sensation and then just let the mind just uh, appreciate that accept that know that as a feeling and then to stay with that consciously for a few minutes and then let it fade um, uh, naturally. And then you can, in letting it fade, then the encouragement or one a skillful way of letting it fade is to use, focus on the out-breath, the, the, the natural sort of re- relaxing, relinquishing quality of the, of the out-breath. And then after some time, that, the, that feeling has faded and the mind goes back to, to where you started from. It's a kind of a, an openness, a quietness, a peacefulness. So in that, you've watched the whole life cycle of the angry feeling being born, doing its thing, being fully accepted, and then coming to an end. And knowing it just as a physical sensation, you know, this is this is what anger feels like, it makes it much more known and knowable and known as a pattern of nature, like the shape of a cloud, or the you know, the sound of a of a bird, you know, the the feeling of the body walking along, the sensation in uh, in your feet of, of walking on the ground. It's just it's just that. It's just a, a set of sensations. It's just a pattern of perceptions. That's all. That you're not suppressing it. You're not uh, making it personal. Not say I'm a terrible person because I feel this way. Yeah, yeah, but she shouldn't have said that because she really <laughs> getting lost in the stories but rather uh, this is a shape in nature it's like this it has this particular tone and, and quality and uh, and in that cycle it's been it's been born it's done its thing it's been fully accepted fully known uh, and then it's come to its natural end it begins it ends that's all it's not a not a big thing and what is quite often quite revealing is that when you when emotions are, are explored and and uh, received in that way, then they're far less complicated than when they're mapped onto our life and our 
uh, uh, activities and stories and relationships. Yeah, the, the emotion of liking, the emotion of approving, the emotion of disapproving, of jealousy, of fear, of, of, of desire, of aversion. There are a lot more simple and straightforward um, than we we tend to think of them as being because our mind gets so wrapped up in all the, the stories about and then the, you know, the personal qualities that get woven into that. So uh, that's, a, uh, I find, a very valuable um, kind of practice to use. If there's a particular emotion that the mind gets drawn into uh, over and over, then make it a program. You know, just, uh, don't just try and, and, and sort of use the skills when you're in a, in a live match, <laughs> when it's a competition, but you know, you, uh, use, the tra- use the meditation as a, a training ground for that. And, that, uh, and then if, if you try that out and you, you find you, you say, okay, let's investigate anger, and then with sort of one thought, then vroom, you know, you're lost for like 45 minutes. Like, well, that's a, <laughs> that was a live one. <laughs> and you can see, wow, I really need to, to you know, look at how much my mind is invested in those stories. And then just, uh, you know, I would say, do what you can to work with that, recognizing, wow, I really get pulled in very, very easily just to a memory, an idea. Okay, so let's... Let's try that again and see if we can uh, go a bit slower and and just use the the um, the the that reactive process as something to learn from. And then if you keep working with it slowly, well, for most people it becomes easy, easier and easier to to work to to know how those patterns work and to not be so drawn into them. If you only ever try and work with emotions when they're in live situations, it's it's not an easy task. It's not not, you know, not training going onto the onto the tennis court or the, the basketball court or the football field and uh, expecting to be able to 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 play well <laughs> without having done any training. It's like no, you, it, it, the the whole system is not fit and ready for that. Yes. When it's an emotion that's uh, well, take fear, and it's not something that feels as tangible as being able to recall or bring up an event, for instance. If it feels like fear that's more kind of abstract or doesn't feel more nameless, mm-hmm. you, c- you couldn't necessarily conjure up the feeling. When, you're, when it's just not there, how would you say that a, a skillful way might be to work or start a process of working with that when it doesn't feel like I'm not scared of <laughs> a snake when I could kind of expose myself to mm-hmm. something like that fear more easily than when it feels like it's not really nameable? Uh, well, with, with fear... Um, well, uh, Often, uh, fear, anxiety is felt as a kind of tension in the body, usually in the in the abdomen, the solar plex- in the kind of solar plexus or the the, the stomach area, and so uh, just consciously tightening your stomach, just like and uh, tensing deliberately tensing the body, so putting the body into a fear state 
and uh, how it, how it would be if there's a, an anxiety, and literally just sort of stressing the muscles and feeling, okay, what well, what what's this like? And then, I mean, even as I'm speaking, just sort of doing that, then then relaxing. Okay, now there's a freedom from that, from that tension. Okay, you know, you tighten the muscles in your in the abdomen. Uh, in a, you know, instantly you feel anxious. <laughs> relaxing. Okay, now it's gone. So you get familiar with the physical qualities we go. I mean, div- uh, everybody experiences the physical qualities of, emo- of emotions in slightly different ways, but you can experiment with that, you kind of thing. Or like if you're angry, just clench- clenching your teeth. <laughs> you know, that <laughs> take that as a kind of a, of a way of... of Generating a, or accessing the angry feeling, <laughs> having a snarl, and just letting the 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 physical setup um, be known, and then uh, that's got some kind of elements of the emotion that, that go with it, and uh, and so it's particularly with anxiety. Um, one of the things I was told a number of years ago was that, uh, um, and, uh, that it's it, as a general statement. One of the things that uh, about antidepressants, like that, or uh, anti-anxiety uh, medicine, like like Valium, is that they work mostly as a muscle relaxant. They're not really working on your mind. They're actually taking away the habits of of tensing. So that your body is relaxed, and so it's hard to get a good fret going when your body is not supporting you. So, uh, uh, well, I mentioned that in a, in a Dhamma talk a number of years ago, and, and some uh, uh, doctor in the audience said, "Well, actually, I don't." <laughs> Gave me a whole kind of review of how the sort of neurological aspects of Valium were part of it, but uh, as I understand it, mostly it works as a muscle relaxant. And on the basis that if your body is relaxed, you can't you can't stay in a state of of, te- of worry and, and fretting in a in a, the the in a usual way. So to continue, the Buddha said to see Dharma and enter Dharma. That is to see all things as they really are. Living beings and material objects as well as the inner phenomena of feeling and thinking. All this is dharma. There are these two categories, objects that can be seen by the eye, or known by the other senses, and mind, which cannot be seen in that way. It's nothing far away from us, just mind and body. But this dharma, this nature, arises independent of our wishes from causes and conditions. In the middle it changes, in the end it breaks up and disappears. The Dharma of nature has power above all things. No one can request it to become greater or less. Natural things have their own mode of existing according to their causes. Also, um, one of the, um, the, the um, aspects of the, the, the development of the Brahma Viharas in, in the the uh, one of the the chants that we often do, the uh, one that uh, begins "May I abide in well-being, ahang sukito homi," that we do from time to time. 
um, it goes through each of the four sublime abidings, the Brahma Viharas, Ahang Sukita Homi May I Abide in Well-Being, and then for Karuna, for Compassion, May All Beings Be Released from All Suffering, for Mudita, for Sympathetic Joy, May All Beings Not Be Parted from the Good Fortune They Have Attained. So that's the first three of those. When you, you know, when you come to the reflections to cultivate upeka equanimity, it changes gear. There's a, there's a shift of of, um, of approach, and so the way to develop upeka is contemplation of cause and effect. I'm the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma, related to my karma, abide supported by my karma. Whatever karma I shall do, for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. So that. Um, and that contemplation of cause and effect, and that uh, being as being a way to to develop upeka, um, is I, I would say is very much a way of making that shift from a self-centered perspective to a dhamma-centered perspective or, or nature-centered perspective. Seeing things in terms of here's the cause, here's the effect. It doesn't matter whether you did it or somebody else did it. You know this uh, this. Uh, there was an angry feeling, it was acted upon, there's a painful result. There's a, someone um, made a, a friendly gesture, and there's a, a, a positive, you know, warm feelings that arise on account of that. Here's the cause, here's the effect. This is how nature works. So it's not a kind of suppressing of, of, um, of feeling, but, recognize, but seeing things in terms of how nature operates. Um, it's not an abdication from responsibility, but rather it's a, a way of changing the, the the perspective. So I feel that that you know, if if there's that wish to change the 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 point of view, so that the the we the, the mind is is learning to see things in terms of, of nature rather than self view, then. That active contemplation of cause and effect is extraordinarily helpful. That they will, if you if you tell a lie, then that feeling of of regret, having to sustain the lie, <laughs> to remember what the lie was, and and feeling that you got to, to to sustain it, or or going to someone to apologize and say, well, that wasn't really true, and uh, to uh, to make up for it. Uh, the complications and the tension and difficulty that comes from having told a lie, then here's the cause, here's the effect. Uh, if you tell the truth, then you don't have to be uh, worried about people finding out that it wasn't true. <laughs> that there's no anxiety or no no uh, no tension in the mind on account of what was said, because uh, to the best of your ability, you was you were saying what was true. So um, rather than uh, than uh, Seeing things in personal ways, just recognizing if the, if the, an unwholesome action is taken, there's a painful result. If a wholesome action is taken, there's a pleasant result. QED. That's just, that's the way nature works. So that that um, actively seeing things in terms of cause and effect, it's a very direct way of, sort of depersonalizing things. Like say that um, maybe your um, your working in the, the, the kitchen here and you're around about doing things you're you're, uh, you're helping out setting things up you can hear the sound of the machinery over in the building site area it's not a problem it's not intrusive it's not difficult because you're in the middle of doing the stuff in the kitchen but you can hear those machines you know, going uh, going over there 
um, then you come to sit and meditate in a, in a temple and they, oh, well, that noise, well, those machines, <laughs> they're interrupting my meditation. Well, so then you can, you can look at the cause and effect relationship there because, like, okay, when, when I'm not uh, wishing for things to be silent, I'm in the midst of other activity, that sound is not registered as being intrusive. Um, so that, <clears throat> because of the, you know, this cause of having a, an openness to that, uh, whatever noise is going on, uh, as, uh, uh, it's just there, it's not a problem then the mind is at peace with it. When the mind says, there shouldn't be any noise because I'm meditating, then it makes that same set of noises into a problem. <laughs> because that's the cause is, I want it to be silent. The effect is is annoyance because it's not silent. So uh, just to be able to see, oh, look at that. Yeah. <clears throat> because of expecting silence, then there's a, an irritation. The mind is, If the mind is not expecting silence, there's no irritation. Here's the cause, here's the effect. And then uh, there's an, uh, an evenness of attitude. There's a kind of balance that, that comes. That the, the mind is, uh, is then naturally going to let go. Well, for most people. <laughs> there's a, a letting go. That, oh, it's just, yeah, uh, that's the cause, that's the effect. This is the way things work. Uh, as soon as the bell has gone and the meditation's over, then suddenly the noise from the machines is not a problem anymore. <laughs> Ding! Uh, uh, look at that. This is the way that the, the mind works. So there's a, and it's not a difficult thing to do, but it takes a, a, an application, a, a recollecting to apply that kind of uh, way of seeing that. To remember to, to look at things in that kind of a way but when you do when there is that reflection on cause and effect then to see oh this is <laughs> this is why it leads to upeka it leads to serenity that leads to that quality of balance because it's letting go of that uh, personal perspective and it's just seeing things in the terms of, of how nature works and then the result of of seeing uh, with that eye of Dhamma, seeing with that uh, from a, the nature-centered perspective, there's a there's that quality of evenness, of serenity. Like, oh, of course, <laughs> of course, it's like this. You know, the, the noise is still there, but the mind doesn't make a problem out of it. So, I highly recommend. Contemplation of cause and effect as a as a way to uh, establish you know, peace uh, uh, peace of mind, and and there's a very practical and direct way of supporting the the practice of, of insight meditation. There's that shift from the habits of, of self-centered thinking and and judging. I like. I don't like. I approve. I don't approve. I I, I want. I, I like it this way. I don't like it that way. Uh, those very you know, uh, deeply ingrained self-centered habits of thinking that it's a, a very direct way of, of going uh, uh, going against that so it's not a complicated practice it's not difficult to do but it, it needs to be remembered you need to remember to apply it otherwise it, it, it can't uh, it can't do much it can't do much good it can't help you very much if you don't apply it so any thoughts, questions?
Okay, so continue a little bit more. The Dharma that we come to request, the precepts and the teaching, is a tool to help us understand. The teaching is words. Dharma does not exist in the words. Rather, the words are a path, something to point out the way to people, to catch their minds and lead them to know and realize Dharma. So it's said that the teaching itself is not Dharma. We hear with the ear and speak with the tongue, but that is not of ultimate value. The words and concepts are not Dharma itself. If they were actually Dharma, they would have an independent existence of their own above all things. So coming to understand Dharma is just a matter of working to develop the wisdom to see things according to truth rather than destroying or changing anything. Take the body as an illustration. It's born of causes and conditions. When it's born, it has a certain power, a law, to exist in a certain way, and it doesn't listen to anyone. We were born, we were little, and we grew to adulthood and got older, our bodies changing according to their nature. They grow and age, no matter what anyone says, thinks, or wants. It doesn't do any good to cry and moan, to ask you to stop, even for a day. In the beginning it's born according to causes, it develops my conditions, and in the end it'll break up, not depending on anyone's wishes or orders. This is the nature of life, existing by this unchanging law. So the Buddha taught us to look at this point. This is extremely important. Skin, teeth, hair and the rest, what will you see there? Constant change. Having arisen, they seek their own end and go on decaying on their own. Having arisen, they do not depend on the power of beings, but on the power of the causes and conditions that brought them into existence. Having arisen, they decay in the same way. They don't need to ask permission or agreement for any of us to help them to grow, age, wither and die. This happens on its own. We don't have authority over them. This is form, the body, changing according to its own nature, dissolving in the end. This is Sabhava Dhamma, or natural conditions. In any direction or place, there'll never come a day when we can argue with it or tell it, Hey, listen to me. Pay attention to my cries. Don't get old. Do as I say. Nature is like this. It's part of the Dharma that the Buddha taught. We are not these things, nor are we their owners. So, uh, uh, um, again, that... um, the, there's a distinction between the the dharma as the the words of the Buddha or the words of the teaching, and the dharma which is the ultimate reality. And so, as I think I was mentioning in the the morning reflection today, some of the the uh, the words of the chanting, uh, the the um, the the, uh, the teaching which he is uh, is described as the teaching which the the Buddha has expounded so well. So that's one way of understanding dharma or dhamma. And then dhamma, which is the ultimate reality, is not aver- is nothing to do with, with words, but it's that, that uh, fundamental uh, uh, reality, that ultimate reality, which is, which is wordless, which is formless and, and timeless. And so the same word, dharma or dhamma, is used to describe both the verbal teachings and the ultimate reality, but they're both quite, uh, uh, say, quite distinct from each other. 
So that uh, what, what uh, Lumpur Cha is saying here is that uh, the, Dharma, uh, the Dharma does not exist in the words, rather the words are a path, something to point out the way to people, catch their minds and lead them to know and realize Dharma. So it said the teaching itself is not Dharma. So that, that which might sound a little bit confusing, <laughs> but uh, the, he's saying that the words are not the ultimate reality, but they the words can lead to the realization of that, and so that there's, it's appropriate to to um, to term them in that way. But it's also interesting um, that uh, uh, in in the Diganikaya, one of the suttas, um, I think it's the Kevada Sutta in the Diganikaya, the long discourses, where the Buddha says there are two kinds uh, of miracle. Uh, there's the miracle of psychic power, like flying through the air or reading people's minds, or, um, uh, or uh, um, those kind of things that um, can be done through through various psychic powers. That's one kind of miracle, and the other miracle is the miracle of instruction, whereby hearing words, then those words can impact the the heart and can bring about. The, the the mind's liberation, the mind's awakening, just through the impact of, of hearing the the sound of the words, and the and the understanding arising on account of those words being being heard and their meaning being fully imbibed, and so that the um, that uh, uh, in that little passage, then the, the Buddha says of these two, the miracle of instruction is the superior. So you might think, well, flying through the air or reading people's minds is kind of more impressive. But uh, he says the, the miracle of instruction is the superior is the superior kind of miracle. That's more more amazing, more wonderful that we can uh, we can hear the, the words uh, of the teaching and they can impact the mind uh, in a certain way and change uh, the the perspective, change the understanding, change the 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 uh, the kind of the attitude and experience of the individual in a, a radical and and, and um, uh, irreversible way, which is a great miracle. And, uh, and there's numerous cases you you come come across in the suttas of people just hearing the or the the very first discourse that uh, with Kandanya hearing the the Dhammachaka Sutta. Then he became a stream entry, hearing the, the sound of that, and then the, the discourse on not self, the Anattalakana Sutta. All five of, of the Buddha's friends all became arahants just hearing that fifteen minute, twenty minute long Dhamma talk. So that's a miracle. <laughs> but the, the uh, that uh, it is in a way just the sound of the words, but because of the capacity of the mind to to hear and to listen and for those words to have an impact, then the the, um, the the dhamma itself can be can be realized and can be embodied as uh, having been catalyzed uh, that realization having been catalyzed by the words themselves. Then uh, this uh, second part here, he's talking about the, um, the 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 body as an illustration that uh, and again seeing things in terms of, of nature that we might. Um, we, we live with the body and we live with the changes of the body but uh, the body is functioning according to its own its own laws its own uh, uh, characteristics and that we can have a little bit of an effect on the body in terms of, uh, of how much we move around or what we eat and 
uh, what uh, what kind of things we we do to with the body, but the amount of control is is very very minor, and the the aging of the body and the the functioning of many aspects of the body are completely beyond any kind of personal um, uh, personal involvement, and so that um, that bringing that to mind and to 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 recognize that over and over, say like, look. <laughs> This uh, this body that we live with all the time, every day, it's it's uh, it's not it's not something that we are in control of. It's not something that we really own, um, and we, we uh, so much of the aspects of the body we can't have a, any personal effect on. So that some things we do, we say like you know, I speak or I I walk or I eat. We we take that in the, in our languaging of things where, where we do have a measure of control. But other aspects of the body, um, then uh, we uh, even the the way we talk about it, there's there's a recognition that it's not it, it, there's nothing personal about it. Like we don't say I beat my heart, right? <laughs> the heart beats. It's like there's no I involved in the in the heartbeat. It just we we don't say you know I I beat my heart. No, it's kind of nonsense. But you know the, the heart beats on its own, or that. Um, the uh, so that there's uh, the contemplation of the body is a lot to do with appreciating the um, the, <coughs> the aspects of it that are not under personal control, and that rather than just focusing on the things that that where we do have a measure of agency to say, well, look, this, the, the body is part of the, na- the natural order. It's not something that is is uh, personal, and that. Uh, a huge amount of of what the body is and how it works and what it does is uh, is uh, completely out of any kind of uh, personal control and uh, appreciate that look at that see that this is this is the the, the kind of center point uh, of our lives and the um, uh, and, and yet a, a huge proportion of it is we have no no control over like people who would much prefer to have knees that were functioning, you know, that were that were not painful, or we sitting in meditation, I like to be able to to sit on the floor and not have aches and pains. Try telling the body, stop aching. <laughs> Does it, uh, it doesn't work, or telling it to be more flexible, uh, it doesn't work. So that um, using that that set of uh, uncontrollable qualities or things that are outside of our personal um, agency that bring that to mind notice that rather than just uh, ignoring that side of things or or looking at it as a bit of a uh, of an irritation but to take that as a contemplation yeah this is not it's not me it's not mine it's not under personal control it uh, it has its own laws and its own uh, attributes uh, it's one of the things uh, that I do appreciate out of the university degree I did uh, in uh, in the 1970s. I was a student at London University. I did a joint degree in psychology and physiology. And uh, one of the things of studying physiology for, for three years was just appreciating how, how so staggeringly complex the body is and how Amazing that it functions at all. You know, it was just uh, 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 the the degree of of um, 
the subtlety in the way that the body looks after its own processes. I remember quite a few times I'd come out of a lecture thinking, uh, how are we, how do we even stand or walk, let alone do, you know, do anything complicated like driving a car or pole vaulting or, or, or um, yeah, playing playing tennis or, or such like is just incredible that we can do anything. It's just there's so many things that can go wrong, and so mysterious how the whole thing works. That so that really, in a, in a way, prepared me a lot for coming into the forest monastery and then hearing a lot of these um, uh, body contemplations and how you know the body is not self. It's like yeah, right. This is. <laughs> This is really a, quite an extraordinarily complex natural system. There's even one cell. If you look at what goes on in an or, just an ordinary uh, s- uh, structural cell of the body, just in a, a muscle cell or a cell in your 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 gut or your one of your bones, it's just uh, staggering the complexity of things that go on just in one little cell with a nucleus and how it uh, maintains its life and uh, and. Um, receives nourishment and gets rid of um, debris, you know, it's leftovers and so on. It's quite uh, quite incredible. So that uh, that um, recognition of the, you know, the body is not self and <laughs> uh, is, uh, I felt, was quite strongly backed up by that uh, little bit of scientific background that, that I have in that area. So it's worthy of contemplating and to to um, not just focus on the on the body in terms of what I'm, you know, what I want to do next and, and uh, the routines of the day, but to be actively looking at how it's put together and how how much it is just a part of the natural order, like a uh, like a you know a, a tree or a cloud or the uh, other aspects of the natural world uh, around us. Okay, so I'll leave it there for today. Seven o'clock has come round already.